Oh, yay. Oh, yay. This is SCOTUS Talk, a nonpartisan podcast about the Supreme Court for lawyers and non-lawyers alike. Brought to you by SCOTUS Blog. Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. Thanks for joining us. Monday, May 23rd, marks three weeks since a draft opinion published by Politico revealed that a majority of the Supreme Court had voted to overturn Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the landmark decisions establishing a right to an abortion. Much of the coverage of the Supreme Court has understandably focused on that draft opinion, which to be sure is not a final opinion, by Justice Samuel Alito and its potential impact, as well as the leak of the opinion from a generally leak-proof court. But over the next six weeks, the justices are poised to issue 34 other opinions on topics ranging from gun rights to religion and the EPA's power to regulate greenhouse gases. I have two guests today to help us look ahead at the final stretch of the 2021-2022 term. Stephen Macy covers the Supreme Court for The Economist and is a professor of political studies at Bard College High School Early College in New York City. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us. Amy, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. And James Ramoser is the editor of SCOTUS Blog. James, thanks for making the time for us today. Always good to be with you, Amy. Thank you so much. So Stephen, let's start with you. Uh, Just to kick things off, which cases of the remaining opinions are you following most closely and and why? Well, this is a big year, right? There's so many cases that people are not paying attention to because all of our eyes are on Dobbs and what's going to happen. Two cases that I'm most interested in, I was actually attracted to following the Supreme Court surrounding the religion clauses when I first started covering the court. Uh, But there are two really important cases, both of which are nominally and officially free exercise cases, but they have really interesting and important implications for the meaning of the Establishment Clause. And those are uh, Carson v. Macon and Kennedy versus Bremerton. The Carson case out of Maine involves an objection to a state funding scheme where students who don't have public high schools in their districts are able to get supplemental funds from the state to pay for secular private schooling at a school nearby, but those funds are not available for sectarian schools. Um, And some religious parents objected and said this is, it's contrary to the fair exercise clause to provide funding for secular education, but not for religious, if a state is going to open up its, its coffers for that. And then, of course, the uh, more recent case that was just argued about a month ago, Kennedy is, a, is the praying football coach case. And while, you know, as I mentioned, the questions presented in both these cases are, are free exercise claims, they both present the question of whether the Establishment Clause really means anything. What the, what the parameters of the Establishment Clause still are. So I'll be really interested to see how those cases come down in terms of this, you know, it, it's been a, a constant battle over the decades between free exercise and establishment as sort of a Scylla and Charybdis of the First Amendment. You can't go too close to either one without getting swallowed up. But now, you know, in, in more recent years, it seemed more like there's only a Scylla and not a Charybdis, right? If you do anything that could be interpreted as unfriendly to religion, even if the purpose of it is to achieve more of a separation between church and state, that the majority of the court is not going to look favorably on those moves. 
so that's those two cases are ones that I'm really keen on finding out how the court resolves them. I, I suspect I know how it's how they're going to come out, but I just wonder what's left of the establishment clause afterwards. James, what about you? Yeah, I think certainly those two are important. I think the other major blockbusters that that really would be the the, the signal case of the term, if not for abortion on the docket, are the cases involving guns and climate change. The guns case is called New York State Rifle and Pistol Association against Bruin. And that's a challenge under the Second Amendment to a New York gun control law that restricts who can carry concealed handguns outside the home. It's very similar to many gun control measures in states and cities across the country. Of course, there's added context here given the recent Buffalo shooting in New York, the very state at issue in the case. And depending on how narrowly or broadly the court interprets the right to bear arms, um, as opposed to keep arms, which is the other clause of the, the Second Amendment, the ruling in New York State Rifle could have ramifications all around the country for all sorts of laws and regulations that limit the ability to carry weapons outside the home. And the climate change case, I think, may have fallen off some folks' radar because there are so many other hot-button social issues on the docket this term, and also because the case is on its face highly technical. The case highly is, technical, <laughs> to, to say the least. And I'm not even going to try to explain the technical the technicalities of the case right now. But the case is called West Virginia versus Environmental Protection Agency, and at its core, it involves the authority of the EPA to issue broad regulations to limit carbon emissions that cause climate change. There are various sort of jurisdictional and technical issues in the case, like, for example, the actual policy that is before the court isn't even in effect currently, and the Biden administration is in the process of drafting its own climate change policy. So it's not even really clear if the court has the power to reach the merits of the case. But I think that you saw an oral argument, at least some of the conservative justices seem eager to reach the merits and weigh in on the authority of the EPA to tackle climate change. Um, if the court were to issue a decision on the merits and limit that authority and essentially say that the Clean Air Act does not give the agency broad authority to tackle that issue. Obviously, the ramifications you know, can hardly be overstated given the urgency of climate change, not just for America, but for the world. And depending, in that case, depending on what exactly they say, if they issue some sort of ruling on what's known as the major questions doctrine, the idea that if Congress is going to authorize an agency to issue regulations that have widespread and really vast significance that it needs to say so clearly. And so that could really open all sorts of things up if the justices were to rule on, on the major questions doctrine more broadly. Yeah, it can hamper the ability of executive branch officials across the administrative state to, to, to do what they have been doing for decades, which is, you know, interpreting broad statutes from Congress and issuing regulations. 
so the yeah the the implications could could go well beyond just environmental policy for sure. One thing about the EPA case, neither here nor there, maybe that I was surprised to learn in in covering that case, is that at the moment there are no regulations on power plants in the country, right? There, as as you mentioned, James, they're they're working on them and they hope to have a draft rule by the end of 2022. But for the time being, right, climate change continues and uh, there are no rules on um, on how power plants can be regulated. The other interesting thing that goes to the issue of whether or not this is a major question was a point that the U.S. Solicitor General made representing the EPA, the clean power plant, which was the original Obama era plan, wouldn't have had major consequences. You can see it because energy industry actually reached the plan's goals nearly 10 years early, even without the regulations in place. Yeah, the clean power plan was the first policy issued by the Obama administration. And you know, it was challenged in this big lawsuit that, you know, sort of kicked off this like series of litigation. And it turns out that, you know, the, the standards that they set to meet by 2030 have, like you said, Amy, already been met just through market forces and the reduced cost of renewable energy. So it is really interesting. Another interesting nuance of that case is that most of the power generating industry is actually on the side of the Biden administration supporting the ability of the agency to issue what are called grid-wide measures to regulate carbon emissions. That's pretty surprising because usually you you think that industry doesn't want the government to have the broad power to regulate. But in this case, it's actually advantageous for the power industry to have sort of wholesale, cohesive, coherent, grid-wide measures, because it, I guess it just helps them do business better and, and plan their affairs. So really, the, 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 cha- the main challengers to that authority are just a handful of coal companies. So not actually power companies, but coal companies who mine the coal that gets used in these outdated coal-fired plants, as well as some red states who don't want the government to have this authority. West Virginia uh, is the lead state, and I guess it's, it's a coal state. Coal country, yeah. Well, let's turn to the big picture. With the focus on the abortion case, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, there's been a lot of talk about Chief Justice John Roberts losing control of the court. You know, the idea that the, the power is now with the five justices who at least originally voted to overturn Roe versus Wade. And according to some of the other leaks, we, we know that the Chief Justice John Roberts was not one of those. At the oral argument, he had backed upholding Mississippi's ban on abortions starting after the 15th week of pregnancy, but seemed reluctant to overturn Roe versus Wade. He seemed to be the only one who was interested in that. But do you think that there's a similar dynamic that's likely to play out in these cases? Or are some of these cases particularly the religion cases, more likely to divide six to three, giving Roberts the chance to control the court. All the cases we've talked about today, I think are most likely to come down six, three. Both of the free exercise cases that I mentioned, the EPA case, the guns case, listening to those oral arguments, I think there were, it was easy to count six votes on on one side of, of each of those questions. 
So I don't think we'll have a lot of five, four decisions in the, in the hot button cases this year, other than probably potentially Dobbs. So it, it may be, you know, I think we ended, we ended last term with some question about, is this really a six to three court or is it more a three, three, three court? Cause there were a couple of cases in which the three most con- conservative justices, Justice Thomas, Leto, and Gorsuch, were off on their own while there was sort of a middle block of Barrett, Kavanaugh, and Roberts. And I, with the exception of abortion, I don't think we'll see that pattern a lot at, at the end of June this year. It's really interesting. It, it seems like just yesterday, when in 2019 and 2020, everyone was talking about how John Roberts is the or was the most powerful chief justice in a century, that he was the both the chief and the median justice and had the ability to control whether the court sort of took big ideological steps or proceeded in more incremental ways. And last term, the 2020-2021 term, Amy Coney Barrett's first term on the court, I don't think you saw the new 6-3 conservative majority going as far as it could. There were some cases where the conservatives could have gone farther and probably because of some moderating influences from Roberts, possibly from Brett Kavanaugh, you actually saw narrow decisions that didn't reach the most extreme conservative outcomes that the some on the right were, were hoping for. And time will tell, we have a month left in this term most of the major decisions are still pending, but I agree with Steve that I don't think we're going to see those same incrementalists moderating impulses over the next month. I think we're going to see this term as the first term in which the sort of new 6-3 conservative majority fully flexes its muscles. And whether that means that Roberts has lost some power I think is in the eye of the beholder. I think, yeah, like Steve said, in many of the cases, Roberts will be fully on board with the other five conservatives. I think in others, he might prefer a more sort of incrementalist approach. Certainly Dobbs seems to be one of them. And it it looks at least based on the political leak and what we know right now that, you know, he might, uh, you know, be out of luck there. Although, although who knows, maybe he'll somehow pull a rabbit out of the hat and figure out a way to write a narrow decision that, continues to uphold Roe, but continues to narrow at the same time, uh, you know, time will tell. It seems like with at least two of these cases that we talked about, the New York guns case, and then Carson versus Macon, the, the main school funding case, it seemed pretty clear after the oral argument that all six justices were likely on board, all six of the conservative justices. And it was really just a question, you know, in the guns case, do we just strike down this New York law, or do we go further and say something about the right to carry a gun outside of your home? And then, you know, Carson versus Macon, it's a pretty unusual program in Maine, so they could say that it's unconstitutional, but then the question, as you both said, is what else are they going to say, if anything? And I guess that's what we will find out in the next six weeks. You think we're looking at any surprises, either in maybe not so much in these cases, but in in some of the other major cases that the court has heard over the last couple of months, either, you know, in terms of the outcome 
not being divided on ideological lines, either because there's a broad consensus or because of an unusual vote? Well, I think overall, um, from a zoomed out point of view, as a practical matter, it's the decisions that are that have broad consensus that come earlier because you don't need to circulate so many opinions and they just sort of come out like Shirtliff versus Boston was 9-0. That was an important first First Amendment case that came pretty quickly. I, I was trying to rack my brain as you were asking the question as to you know what surprises might await us. And I don't expect, well, I guess you never expect surprises, right? That's why they're a surprise. But I don't have the impression that there are any big cases where we will be surprised. It's possible, you know, as we were just discussing, that some may be broader and some narrower. Um, the question of the guns case, whether they announce a right to carry a gun outside the home as part of the Second Amendment, or if they just say that New York's law is, is discriminatory and needs to go, but that it's not a broad statement about a reshaping or a bolstering of the, of the Second Amendment. I think that's sort of the narrow range of possibility in a case like that. And I think that's true with the EPA case. It doesn't seem that there's much question about the outcome in the, in the EPA case. It's just a question of how far the court might go in limiting agency autonomy to set rules beyond the EPA. I don't know if James has a, has a thought about some cases that might surprise us. I, I might note two cases. Um, the first is a case called Biden versus Texas, uh, which involves a controversial Trump era immigration policy um, that's called the Remain in Mexico policy. It essentially forces people seeking asylum at the southern border to wait at the border instead of coming into the United States to receive immigration hearings. And the question is whether the Biden administration may unwind that policy as it wishes to do, or whether it needs to keep that policy in place. And I think if you just think about the merits and think about the composition of this court, you might assume that there would be a majority to keep that policy in place. But after the oral argument, the court ordered some supplemental briefing on a technical jurisdictional question involving whether the court even has the power to decide this case at all. And I think that's a signal that the justices are considering just kicking this case back and, and not deciding the merits, especially because that jurisdictional issue barely even got attention in the merits briefs, but some justices are clearly interested in it. So I, I think we you know, watch that for potentially an, an, uh, a result that wouldn't have been expected. The other case that I'm watching closely that I've been sort of talking about all term as the sleeper case of the term <laughs> to anyone who will listen is called American Hospital Association versus Becerra. And on the surface, it seems like the most dull as dishwasher case because it involves an arcane Medicare payment formula for certain drugs that hospitals dispense. I'm not gonna get into the technicalities Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the, I couldn't even explain them if I wanted to uh, in detail. But the reason it's important is that it is a test of whether this court is going to continue to apply the so-called Chevron doctrine. And Chevron, of course, is the landmark 1984 case that basically said if Congress passes sort of a broad and ambiguous law, agencies using that law to issue regulations 
can adopt reasonable interpretations of that law when they're issuing the regulations and courts will generally defer to the agency's interpretations. And proponents of Chevron essentially say, this doctrine allows executive branch officials in the environmental space and healthcare and workplace safety and education, all sorts of areas that the government regulates. It allows those officials to do their jobs because Congress can't possibly anticipate and pass very specific laws in all these very arcane areas. You know, if you take the facts of this particular case, it involves a Medicare formula that if you look at it on the page, it's like a nightmare from your 10th grade algebra class. Like I've never seen such giant numerators and denominators. And the idea that Congress could have written that formula or sort of anticipated that kind of arcane formula in a statute, especially given the dysfunctional nature of our current Congress, is it's far-fetched at best. So you need bureaucrats to make formulas like that. And in this case, bureaucrats in the Department of Health and Human Services adjusted the formula, essentially because they felt that an old version of the formula was creating a windfall for some hospitals, right? And so they've relied on a broad section of the Medicare law that allows them to make cost-cutting measures to adjust the formula. And they interpreted that broad provision of Medicare law as their source of authority to write a new payment formula. This is what bureaucrats do. But the case raises the issue of whether Chevron allows these executive branch officials to do that. And in fact, some groups in the case have asked the court to explicitly overturn Chevron. And several of the conservative justices, notably Neil Gorsuch and several others, have been very critical of Chevron and questioned it. And this is another way that the court is moving toward hindering the authority of the administrative state. We talked about the major questions doctrine a few minutes ago and curtailing or even potentially eliminating the Chevron doctrine goes hand in hand with that trend. Now, do I think the court is going to explicitly overturn the Chevron case in this case, AHA v. Becerra? I think it's possible, but I think it's unlikely. However, I do think that this case at least will be a very important stepping stone on a road that likely will end within a few years in a decision overturning Chevron. And the consequences of that will be vast. I think supporters of that outcome would say that would be a good thing because it will remove power from unelected and unaccountable bureaucrats to make policy that should be made by Congress. But opponents of that outcome would say that overturning Chevron would actually just hand power away from those bureaucrats and toward unelected, unaccountable federal judges who will now be much more likely to strike down regulations in all sorts of areas when they're being challenged by industry groups. I think James is right to flag that case, which is indeed a very procedurally and factually complex one that Nicholas Bagley wrote the clearest possible both preview and review of the oral argument on SCOTUS blog. So for anyone who wants to read up on it, I would recommend going there. Uh, but I think James is right that that's a case that will probably not overrule Chevron, but be maybe a stepping stone to that 
a couple terms from now. In the oral argument, there were a few justices, the usual suspects on the far right, all three of them, who raised the question, you know, some say that we need to overrule Chevron in order to side with you, speaking to Don Verrilli, who was arguing for the hospitals. And he said, you know, no, 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 this statute is not ambiguous. It's perfectly clear and we can win just on the interpretation of the statute that I'm offering. But when he was pushed, I forget, was I think it was Justice Gorsuch who asked him, well, if we disagree and it, it will require us to overrule Chevron to side with you, then should we overrule Chevron? And really said, well, yes, we want to win. But there are probably just three or maybe four votes for that at the moment. We'll have to wait and see how it goes. But the stakes are enormous, as James said. Let's move on. This has been a really good sort of preview of the end of the term. When we look back at the term, Justice Kavanaugh has been at the center of the court for the last few terms. Do you think he's going to be there again? So far, Kavanaugh hasn't been in the dissent in a single argued case handed down this term. I think last year we saw that uh, Kavanaugh was the most frequent justice in the majority. I would expect that to continue. I would think so also. Yeah, there were a couple of years after he first joined the court when he was, it seemed from his votes and in oral arguments, he was more kind of um, in John Roberts' protective shadow, right? Voting with him almost all the time. But I think Roberts had the highest percentage of being in the majority for those one or two years. And that flipped last year. So Kavanaugh being the median justice. I mean, honestly, I think, as we said earlier, most of these big cases are going to be six to three. So Roberts and Kavanaugh and Barrett will be in the center of the court for, for uh, most of the consequential decisions. But just adding up all the numbers, I expect we'll see that the median justice, again, will be Justice Kavanaugh for this term. Then the last thing I wanted to raise with you all, on Friday the 13th of May, Justice Clarence Thomas spoke at a conference in Dallas. Uh, he was interviewed by John Yu of the University of California, and he had a lot to say. He talked about how nostalgically about the era before the Chief Justice and Justice Alito came to the court, talking about how they trusted each other then. It was, it was 11 years when Justice Breyer was the junior justice were, were wonderful. It sounds like things are pretty bad behind the scenes right now. Yeah, he seemed to be wearing not a MAGA hat, but a make SCOTUS great again hat um, in that interview, right? Let, let's go back to the good old days when everyone got along and everyone was polite and Justices Ginsburg and Scalia could disagree, but be so civil and happy with each other and ride on elephants and go to the opera. The implication of his statement was, you know, it's no longer that way. And if he's saying... His, his words were pretty sharp. So I imagine that whatever's happening behind the scenes is worse than what he's conveying in terms of the atmosphere in that conference room. It sounds like it's a bit of a snake pit right now. No one knows who the, the mole is, right? There must be a mole among them somewhere in that building and they don't know who it is. So it must be tense and they must be either explicitly or implicitly pointing fingers at each other and at each other's clerks. It's not the, the comedy that 
the justices always say always prevails, even when they disagree very strongly about the outcome of certain cases. So it's concerning for the Supreme Court as an institution. Um, and if I'm soon to be Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson, I'm a little, you know, <laughs> I'm a little worried about the workplace that I'm about to enter and the relationships that seem to be frayed. And she's going to have to forge relationships with all those justices. You know, I have to say, I am skeptical of this narrative about the golden days of cordiality among the justices. I mean, it was who Oliver Wendell Holmes, who said the court is nine scorpions in a bottle. I think the court has always been full of extremely ambitious, intelligent people who disagree extremely strongly, often stridently. And this, you know, for many generations, there's been a lot of bad blood, you know, between justices. And, you know, I don't know, I think Thomas's nostalgia may be misplaced. I have a feeling that there's always tense relationships behind the scenes. I think what's different now is that we're seeing more of it spill out into the public sphere. The only other thing I would add about this is I've been assuming to go back to Dobbs, which we haven't talked about because it's been covered so much. I've been assuming that Dobbs is going to come out the way that Alito's draft suggests and that you'll have five justices sign on to something like that, like that opinion that's maybe toned down a little bit from its um, kind of sneering imperiousness. But after thinking a little bit about what Justice Thomas said, if there was a stable majority for Dobbs, I would think he would come out and be a little more copacetic, right? Think things would seem a little more copacetic to him at the Supreme Court. I'm now wondering again if that five justice coalition to overrule Roe and Casey might be wobbly or might be gone, right? That would that would really irk to use a very mild term a justice who has been saying for decades that Roe and Casey are grievously and egregiously wrong, and there's no shred of evidence in the Constitution for such a constitutional right. So it, you know, we we can't really um, very effectively psychoanalyze justices, but I just thought that was a sign that maybe there's some chance that things might come out differently from the way everyone is now expecting. Well, if there's anyone listening who wants to tell us what's going on behind the scenes of the court, our DMs are open. Stephen Maisie, James Ramoser, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be with you, Amy. Thanks so much. And great to chat with you, James. Yeah, great chatting with both of you. Thanks so much. That's another episode of SCOTUS Talk. Thanks for joining us. And thanks to our production team, Katie Barlow, Eleanor Erskine, Angie Goh, and James Ramoser. <laughs>